You are listening to the Courageous Living Podcast with certified life coaches and ministry leaders, Sarah Tolbert and Heidi McLean. The Courageous Living Podcast is about you and how you can live courageously in spite of fear and past experiences. Their goal is to empower you with knowledge, skills, and techniques they share with their clients to help you live a more joyful, purposeful, and fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to season two of the Courageous Living Podcast. At the beginning of every episode, Heidi and I will share our win for the week, and at the end, we will give you a challenge so that you can have your own win for the week. This season, we're doing things a little differently. We are interviewing amazing guests who are living courageous lives. Let's get started. We are so excited that you guys are joining us today for this very special podcast. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it's such an important topic. In the United States, one in four individuals will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. And here in the state of Texas, that number is one in three. And it really is the plague of our generation. I know that I have experienced it in my lifetime, and I know that Sarah has experienced, and we'll touch a little bit upon that. For me, I was in a seven-year relationship, and it started off with little jabs here and there, comments, side comments about, oh, are you going to wear that? Little tiny things, just as simple as that, to then pointing out my flaws, and then gradually telling me that I was worthless. And then that escalated into pushing and then choking. And at one point, I actually had a knife held to my throat. It was scary. I didn't know who I was living with or what consequence I was going to get from my partner. And it was very hard to admit I was in this relationship especially because for years, a couple of years, I had worked for adult probation and parole and saw victims of domestic violence and always wondered, well, why don't they leave? Well, here I was in this relationship. My finances are caught up in it. My emotions are caught up in it. And honestly, for me, I felt even more embarrassed because I didn't want to admit to my previous colleagues that I was in this relationship. And so I stayed because I also didn't see a way out of it. Um, I then had some good friends that I finally opened up to and a counselor and created a safe exit plan, followed it, and thankfully was able to get out um, unscathed physically. Emotionally, there's some battle wounds that I had to work through afterwards but it can take its toll. And really, this is why we want to shine a light on the subject today. Sarah, did you want to share what you experienced? Yeah, um, mine was kind of interesting because I didn't experience the physical aspect of it. And so for me, it was like, is this even really abuse? I didn't understand that, that the emotional, mental abuse, the gaslighting, the accusing me of things, just the bizarre behavior, just the hatred towards me, just telling me I was a bad mom and just all these things that were put into my head. I thought, well, I'm not being hit. So I I mean, can I leave? I don't know if I can leave. Should I leave? I don't know if I should leave. And it was kind of the same thing that you mentioned, Heidi, is when I finally talked to a counselor, she's like, okay, you know what that is, right? I'm like, no life and she goes no that's abuse I'm like oh okay I did not realize that and she's like for your own safety and your own peace of mind you really need to think about getting out and this happened with four different men and it was like a pattern because that's all I knew so for me this is normal this is what's supposed to happen and I'm just supposed to take it And she really helped me get through that and realize, no, this is not normal. This is not acceptable. You do not have to stay. And she helped me kind of get my plan in place. And one in particular, I thought it was going to go violent when I left. 
he started to get physical, but I got away before that happened. And I thought, oh, this, this is going to move into that. Um, that was a very short term relationship. So he very well could have got physical, but the mental was just, I, I can't even describe what that felt like. So yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's so many people, women, and even men that experience domestic violence and just being able to recognize it is going to be huge. That's why I'm so excited to talk to our guest today. So Heidi, do you want to introduce her? Yes, we are very excited to welcome today Ruth Guerrero. She's the Senior Director of Clinical and Non-Residential Services at the Genesis Women's Shelter and Support group here in Texas. And I just had the pleasure of meeting her a couple of weeks and we got on this topic and I just am in awe of what she and her organization do. And I've actually referred some of my clients to her services. So Ruth, um, we are so glad you're here. So thank you so much. Do you want to um, share a little bit about what it is that you do and how you got involved in this program? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm so honored to be invited to come and talk to you guys today, and thank you for making time for this important topic. Uh, yeah, so I moved to Dallas in 2009, and I got a job at Parkland Hospital at one of their community clinics, and it was a grant position, and so the position ended, and I needed another job. So lo and behold, Genesis was hiring for a bilingual counselor. I am an LCSW, and um, I needed a job. So that's how I got to Genesis, which sounds just terrible. However, I have stayed here. For, I've been here for 10 years now, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the agency, with our mission, with our clients. I'm just so in awe every day of the resiliency and the strength and, you know, just the amazing things that our clients have uh, been able to do despite experiencing that trauma that you guys are talking about. So my job, like you mentioned, I'm the Senior Director of Clinical and Non-Residential Services. So I supervise and train all of the therapists and counselors at all of our locations. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements in the community. I do expert witness in court, both in criminal and family court. Um, what do I do? I used to see clients um, and provide counseling in English and Spanish for individual and group counseling. I every once in a while do, but I just do a lot of training and supervising right now with a lot of admin stuff. So I'm basically running the clinical department. Um, I have a great team of counselors and I'm always looking for more. So uh, please hit up our website. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I love being here. You know, I get to work on our strategic plan and how are we improving our services so that we can really do the best for our clients. I don't know that a lot of people understand uh, with domestic violence, it, it's an equal opportunity mm -hmm. um, disease, Offenders. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes, an equal opportunity offender. So in your um, expertise in your shelters, what is the dynamics like of those who are using your services? Yeah, that's a great question. So our mission is to serve women and children, um, women who have experienced intimate partner violence. When we talk about domestic violence, I think some people might misunderstand and think that that just means violence in a family. Um, but for us specifically, that is intimate partner violence and then for children. Uh, we have our shelter, which is a up to an eight week stay. We have transitional housing, which is up to an, a year long stay. And then we have our non-residential location. Uh, we're actually opening a second non-residential location soon. Nice. Yay. Yes, to be, to be um, expanding. Um, so, right, you asked about the dynamics of what happens there. So, obviously, our clients who are at our shelter and transitional housing, they're no longer living with the abusive partner, um, and we offer a lot of services um, at all of our locations. So, at our shelter specifically, we do have an on-site school for the kiddos who live in shelter who need to be still educated, right, still going to school, but at a safe environment. So a woman who might leave her abusive partner, if her children are still going to the same school they were going to before she left, the, the father would be able to go and pick up the kids from school and he legally has the right to do that um, because there's no custody paperwork. And so 
um, he could take them and then not return them to her. And um, so we do offer that school so that they can still be in a safe place. Um, we have our children's department does childcare for when our moms are in appointments. So we have counseling that we do in group and individual services, and then we have advocacy. So the advocacy team helps our clients find other community resources. They help them work on their goals, such as employment and housing and things. Um, and our children's department also does like an after school program and summer camp for our residential clients. Uh, we also have a legal team, which we're really proud of. It's one of our newer programs. We're excited because our attorneys are trauma-informed and they understand domestic violence. And so they handle cases in Dallas County for family law. So it could be divorce or, or custody situations. Um, and our legal and our counseling and our advocacy services are for residential and non-residential locations. So our clients at our non-residential location, they might be, they're not living at Genesis, right? They might be living on their own. They might be living with the abusive partner. They might be kind of on and off with the abusive partner. Um, so they're all welcome to come for our services. They're all eligible. You don't, we're never going to tell someone to leave. Um, leaving actually makes is the most dangerous moment of an abusive relationship. And so we're never telling her to leave. She's the expert on what safety measures are going to work for her. Um, you know, and then we have our 24 hour crisis hotline. So we can now call and text, which is also a new thing. Thank you. Nice. Um, to That's great. And the storm in February. Yes, we're now able to, to receive text messages for our 24 hour hotline. And that's if you are looking to, to, you know, quickly escape from an abusive relationship and go into a shelter. Um, or also if you're having thoughts of hurting yourself or you're in the middle of a panic attack or needing to safety plan because, um, uh, you know, you experience an abusive uh, experience or an abusive incident right, right then. Um, and then our newest program, we actually just started. So we're now on our second round of occupational therapist intern students, um, which is exciting because a lot of people don't think of OT with domestic violence. Um, but really helping with like the daily functioning, you know, a woman in domestic violence, you've got to keep her one eye always focused on the abusive partner, right? And what are they going to do today? And how are they exploding? And how are they feeling? And what's the escalation that's going on? Um, and so that leaves one eye to like, watch the kids and remember her work schedule and figure out meal planning. And so our OTs are really great in being able to help with a wide variety of things. Um, and, and like you asked, you know, our women um, come from all forms, all, all walks of life. Um, it is very much an equal opportunity epidemic, unfortunately. And so we recognize that there are a lot of intersectionality factors that go into how a woman would experience domestic violence in regards to whether it's her race or her religion or her culture or her language or, you know, any ability that she might have. Um, being able to look at how does that affect her domestic violence situation and, and then working with her on that. I love that your program is so well-rounded and mm -hmm. so thoughtful about, it sounds like every aspect, the mental health aspect, the safety aspect, the children, how they can get their education, helping development develop them so that they're able to go back out and care for themselves in the community, the eight-week program in-house, and then transitioning into housing. I mean, that is such a robust program. It's phenomenal. Um, so what would you say to somebody who feels like they need to leave, but maybe not have? So one of the things that abusers tend to do is isolate and not only do the abusers do it, but again, like I said, I felt embarrassed to tell anybody because um, of my work history. And it's like, oh, you know, what are they going to think of me? I'm the one who's sitting there. Why don't people leave? You know, and oh, hi, I'm suddenly one of them. So at what point, um, what's the process like if I'm going from, okay, I can't do this anymore to transitioning? into receiving support. Mm -hmm. Good question. 
So even if you are not sure what you want to do about the situation, right? If you're you're not even sure if it's actually abuse that you are experiencing, kind of what you said, Sarah, right? Mm-hmm. We are here to help a, a woman through that journey, whether she's decided she wants to leave or she can't decide or she's not sure if this is really a healthy situation or maybe if this is just how life is and this is mm-hmm. how relationships work. Um, and like I mentioned, when we're using our trauma-informed lens, we are saying that she is the expert. And so we're going to meet her where she's at. We're never going to tell someone that she has to leave. Right. We're never going to tell her what she ha- has to do or should do, right? But um, we can provide support. So we're talking about coping skills and we're talking about safety planning measures. Um, do you have children? Let's talk about how do you talk to your kids about safety? Um, right. We're really being able to help her understand uh, you may or may not be a, uh, familiar with the cycle of violence. And so we're helping to teach her, okay, what does the cycle look like? And when people talk about the honeymoon phase, that's actually a terrible name for it. It really is this manipulative kindness. It's mm-hmm. this time where he pretends that everything is okay. He's apologizing. Yeah. Um, he's bringing her chocolates and taking her dancing, right? Um, yep. saying that he's never going to do this again, or he's going to go to counseling. And so that builds in her a lot of hope. This is part of why a woman might stay in an abusive relationship because now, okay, he finally sees that mm-hmm. what he's doing is not okay. Right. Um, but the other part of that manipulative kindness, that honeymoon phase is that he could also just minimize or act like it never happened or yep. she's, you know, that goes with the gaslighting, right? Um, you're being too sensitive. You're exaggerating. That's not really what happened. Um, it might be some blaming going on. Well, if you wouldn't have yelled at me first, then I wouldn't have hit you. Um, you know, and thinking about the types of abuse. So we know that there's verbal and emotional, physical and sexual abuse. What people mm-hmm. forget is that part of emotional abuse includes that financial abuse. It includes yes. the spiritual abuse, yes. right? And so yep. that gaslighting is so powerful. We have so many of our clients who tell us that the emotional abuse is actually worse than the physical abuse and harder to heal from. Um, and so that's just something that we are able to work with or maybe maybe it hasn't escalated yet to the physical abuse. It doesn't mean it's never going to escalate there. Like you mentioned, Sarah, it could eventually get to that point and most likely will depending on how long you're in that cycle. And we know that that abuse uh, escalates and also um, that cycle shortens. It gets faster and faster. Mm -hmm. So now the abuse is happening more frequently and it's more severe. Um, And so, but it might be that the woman is not sure exactly what she wants to do. And it's really common. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the trans-theoretical model of change. We call it stages of change for short. But it's this idea that it, she, it's like this continuum when you're thinking about making changes in your life. And so one day, one week, she might come in and say, yes, Ruth, I want to leave him. I'm, you know, I'm done with this. I, I've looked at all of my options and this is what I want to do. And so we make this plan and okay, these are the safety things that you're going to work on. And right now when you're planning on leaving is the time to be the best actress that you can be. You have to just pretend mm-hmm. like everything's fine. Yeah, you're not planning anything, right? Absolutely. Um, but the next week she might come in and say, "Oh, you know, I decided to give him another chance. That's okay. We're not going to yeah. get frustrated. We're going to stay supportive of her." And great, let's talk about what the safety plan is when he escalates again, right? Um, and so just really wanting to make sure that people know our services are free and confidential. We offer them in English and in Spanish, and you do not have to leave or decide to leave if you want to receive our services. Mm. You know, I really love that you said you have to become the best actress that you can be, because really that's the safest way to navigate that whole situation. And part of the reason, you know, they may come back next week is because the offender doesn't escalate because you're being different. You're not like being scared and pulling back. You're like, okay, everything's fine. And then and yes. they're like, okay, I'm, I'm fine. And so then they relax. And it's like dance that you do. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to escalate again. It just means that they're just reacting different to 
how you're the change in your behavior. And so um, we get caught up in that thinking of, oh, it worked. Now it's going to be fine, right? Because mm-hmm. we are always hopeful. We always hope for the best, it seems like, in those situations, especially people we love, right? It's those yeah. intimate partners. We want things to work. We don't go into relationships. I hope this tanks. You right. know? Yeah. <laughs> We're like, let's, let's give this the due diligence it deserves. I also like what you said about just being there to support these women, even if they decide, you know what, I'm, I'm not ready. That's, I mean, that's what I do in my practice. I'm sure Heidi, you do that in yours because Mm -hmm. I don't ever want these women to feel like I'm going to judge them and I don't want them to run away from me, their support, because they feel like I'm going to judge them for their decision to stay. So I love that you said that, that is so key for us to continue to be a supportive piece in their life because they may not have that from anyone else I mean some of my clients are like well my parents say this and my friends say this and they just don't understand and then they quit talking to them and it's like you just eliminated your community but I understand why you did so I I love that I fully support whatever decision my clients make too and I just want to be there for them so thank you for saying that part (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I liked what you talked about with the change continuum too, because Mm -hmm. like you said, sometimes we have to wrap our mind around change and what that's going to look like. And especially when we're caught up in such an emotionally charged situation, it's sometimes hard to see alternatives. Mm -hmm. And, And your brain needs time to wrap your mind around it and then to take action on it. And I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I remember reading that statistically it can take up a, a woman up to seven tries to officially leave an abusive relationship. And I know that each time they go back, there's that sense of guilt and, yeah. you know, am I making the right decision and what does everybody think? And so like Sarah said, like you said, that support and non-judgment of, whatever you need, I'm here Mm -hmm. is so important. So what would you tell somebody, what is the thing that you think the community needs to understand most about domestic violence and how it works and, and how to react, you know, or, or to know what to do if they know somebody who's in that situation? Yeah, thank you, Heidi. I love that question because like you mentioned at the beginning with the prevalence, right? One in four women in the United States, one in seven men in the United States, one in three teen girls, like we're all going to know somebody if it's not ourselves. And so it is this thing of like, what do you do when you find out that a friend is going through that or a loved one? Um, So on our website, we have a lot of different resources. We have how to help a friend and we also have our Be Her First Step campaign. And I want to just talk a little bit about how the first number one thing is to believe her, right? And sometimes that can be hard because maybe you know him and you don't think that he's abusive. And I'm saying him, but I know that of course it happens in same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. And so if you know the abuser and that's hard for you to imagine that they are being abusive and then she tells you, yes, he's being abusive. We want to believe her because maybe nobody else does. Um, or maybe people are minimizing, we know lots with spiritual abuse and, you know, um, there are a lot of big churches in the Dallas area who might say, well, you just need to go home and pray a little harder or be a little bit more Mm -hmm. submissive and then the abuse will stop, right? That's not true. That's probably going to put her in more danger. Um, but so believe her and then you don't blame her. So the number one thing that I just get really sad about with the community and society in general is the question, why does she stay? We've already talked about how it's so dangerous to leave. Um, She's more likely to be killed, 75 times more likely to be killed during the act of leaving or after leaving. That's huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we're not going to blame her. I I can't imagine anything that anyone could do that would warrant being abused, right? And being hurt. Um, so if we can believe her and not blame her and then let her know that there is help available. So places like Genesis, there are lots of other DV agencies in Dallas and there's a national hotline, um, domestic violence hotline for people who are outside of Dallas. Um, and then helping her think of a safety plan, right? So 
is it that she even you and your friend come up with a code word so that if they text you this code word, that means that either you need to call the police or maybe that means that she wants you to call her so that she can get out of a conversation or, you know, an argument with him. Or it means, oh, I need to come over to your house or I need you to come to me right now type of a thing, right? Um, maybe the safety planning is, hey, can you leave? Like, let's make copies of all of your important documents and you can leave them at my house. Or let's put together an overnight bag to leave yep. in your car. Um, so definitely thinking about, okay, why is she saying? She's saying because multiple reasons, right? Either she loves him, she's scared. There's been lots of threats that if you leave me, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take away the kids. I'm going to kill myself. You know, again, with uh -huh. that guilt and that shame, um, it might be cultural or familial ties and talking about why it's important to, you know, stay in a relationship. The number one reason why a woman stays is for her children. She doesn't want her kids to grow up in a home without a dad, or maybe he appears like he's a really great dad. And so, you know, he's hurting me, but he's not hurting the kids. Maybe he is hurting the kids. Yeah. And she knows if we divorce and he gets visitation with the mm -hmm. kids and he's going to be alone with the kids. Now I'm not going to be there to protect them. Heck no, am I letting that happen? I'll just right. stay and go with it, right? Um, so when you ask, like, how do people respond? These are kind of some of the things, like not just automatically going to, oh, well, you have to leave him right away. That's mm -hmm. going to put her in danger. You know, recognizing that if he's not abusing her because he's an alcoholic or because he has an anger problem or because he is stressed out. We've all been stressed out. It doesn't make mm -hmm. us abusers. Um, and actually the anger issue, which is, I know, a very big myth about abuse, but you guys are actually the best at controlling their anger because they know when to turn it off and when to turn it on. This thing called social engineering. So these abusers are really great at social engineering, that they know when to look like the nice guy, controlling their anger at work and at school and at church, right? And in front of family and friends. And then they are intentionally choosing who they're taking their anger out on. And so if we can all keep that in our mind, it's not, everything is not how it appears. So that then when someone is in an abusive relationship, we can support her. And again, I have to just say, so at Genesis, we do a friends and family group. It's a virtual group for any friends and family of, of a victim of abuse to join. Um, we do it every week. And it's free. You just have to call us and get signed up for it. Um, but in there, we talk about how hard it is to watch a loved one go through an abuse situation. But we also talk again about the stages of change, because like you said, Sarah, people like isolation is such a big part of domestic violence. He's on purpose going to try to isolate her from her friends and her family. And if friends and family are telling her she's stupid for staying with him or they're saying, well, it's your fault that you're not being this perfect wife or whatever, you know, perfect girlfriend, um, she is going to stop talking to them. Um, it might be that she's kind of going back and forth between I'm going to leave him, I'm not going to leave him. And maybe she tries, to your point, Heidi, seven times to leave him. And every time she goes back, if her family or friends are kind of tired of her going back and forth and like, well, it's pointless to keep helping her because she's just going to go back with him. If they can understand the stages of change and why that's normal for her to go back and forth, and then they can also stay supportive like we are, um, that's just going to make a huge difference for our clients, for their mental health, for their safety, um, and for their ability to be able to heal from the abuse. I want to add something to that too. The social engineering, my experience was very similar to that, but what was different was I wasn't isolated by him telling me that, you know, you need to stay away from your friends and all that. It was weird because he went to my friends and excluded me and told them all these horrible things about me. And then they kept their distance. And I'm like, these people I've been friends with for 20 years, what is going on? And then talking to them, they're like, well, he said, da, da, da. and I'm like, oh, you've known him for four months and you're what? So that was bizarre to me. I'd never heard of that before. I'd heard of the other route where they're just keeping you away from your friends and family, but 
he went to my friends and family. So I want to throw that out there too, because that can even happen. And it's, it's bizarre and it's scary. And I think friends and family need to hone in on that. Like if their abuser is going to them without you, friends and family, that might be a sign. <laughs> so just be aware of that yeah. too. I'm so glad you talked about that. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you saying that because that is definitely part of the isolation. We, I didn't mention digital abuse. Of course, that is a big mm. part of domestic violence. Um, we've had clients who the abuser will log into their social media account mm. as them and post horrible things to friends. And on wow. social media, you can't tell that it's not you uh -uh. saying those things. And yeah. so we've had lots of times that, yeah, that's how they're isolating them. Yeah, so friends and family just need to be very sensitive to that and know your people. Like, you know your people. You know your friends and family. So if something is off with them, check into it. Don't just assume it really is them saying these things. So. Yeah, and I encourage people to ask a question that yeah. only the two of you would know. Mm -hmm. Like something mm -hmm. that you did on vacation or something, you know, that wouldn't be posted on Facebook or something just to kind of gauge or, you know, you sound a little off today. Can I call mm -hmm. you right now and see what's going on? And, you know, I had a friend, I, I was in a situation where I started dating a gentleman and um, there was no evidence of any kind of abusive tendencies but I had a friend reach out to me she's like who is this guy and I'm mm. like how did you know about that and she said well he reached out to me on Facebook and wanted to know information about you Ooh. and I was just like bye-bye like, <laughs> that was that freaked me out and it's like okay if you're going behind my back to find out information it's like if you want to know about me ask me don't go to my friends and then I mm -hmm. thought what else would he be saying to my friends and family? And so I was really grateful that I had a friend who knew me, loved me, and had my back in that way. And then when I was in that abusive relationship, you're talking about the social engineering. Well, of course, he knew I was leaving. So he started telling everybody I was crazy. Mm. She is crazy. She's delusional. Oh, poor me. So then when I went to spiritual leaders or went to people and said, hey, I need your help. Oh, Heidi, I'm mm. sure it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, have you seen a counselor lately? And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, and I'm trying to get out and I need your help. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm having this conversation. Well, but he's so good and he's, you know, so friendly mm. and the kids love him. And I'm like, I am here telling you that this yeah. is happening and it's so far beyond their realm of thinking because that's not their experience. So you telling people, hey, believe, believe them, her, <laughs> yeah. believe her. And yeah. are there cases in court cases where some people try and throw shade at each other? Absolutely. And I'm not saying that, but if somebody is claiming it because, because of the shame because of the secrecy because of the isolation if they're finally to the point where they are asking for it they're almost at rock bottom or mm -hmm. at rock bottom and so believe them and mm -hmm. yeah is such an important message and so I'm so glad that you highlighted that and said that and um and I'm glad that you talked about the resources too available on your website so that people could create that safety plan. I've worked with my clients in those cases who actually have made their own decision. And like you, we don't guide them to that. It's, hey, Heidi, I've decided to leave. How can I do this in a way that is safe for myself and safe for my children? And then we discuss an action plan, like you were talking about creating documents and things like that. So I'm so excited that you talked about that. Have you had any experience with men reaching out to the program. I mean, yours is a women's shelter. So what about a man experiencing this? Where does he go? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are other agencies in Dallas, um, specifically the family place sees male victims of domestic violence. And so that's our number one place to refer because they're close by us. And so, you know, if they're willing to get to us, they, it wouldn't be too difficult for them to go over there. Um, you know, we have had, um, it, there's this idea out there, it's a myth about um, mutual abuse and this idea that both partners are abusing each other. And so I, 
I just have to bring this up to say statistically, when you look at the victims of domestic violence, it is significantly higher going to be female victims. When you look at the stats and you see the male victims, the majority have male partners. So they are in the same sex relationships. Um, and so absolutely, we never want to minimize and we want to always acknowledge that men can be abused. I think what's important when you look at a relationship and you figure out, you're trying to figure out which person in the relationship is the abuser, um, looking at who has the control, right? We know that domestic violence is caused by power and control. It's the sense of entitlement. So for example, if me and my boyfriend were fighting and he said, you know, like, oh no, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And I had to stop talking about it. He's the one who has power and control because he's able to end the conversation, right? Or if I say, no, I'm done talking about this. Let's talk about this tomorrow. And he says, no, we're not done. We're going to keep going. Again, he's the one that has that power, right? When you look also at abuse, you have to think about fear. And just because it might not be something that would make you scared, doesn't mean it doesn't make someone else scared. So a silly example is if a woman were to have to go to Walmart, let's say one o'clock in the morning, right? And so she parks her car. How is she walking through that parking lot to get into the store? She's probably walking quickly. She's got her head high. Maybe she's holding her keys in her hands like we've all been taught. She's mm -hmm. on high alert, right? Just walking through a parking lot. But if you ask, and I do lots, like I said, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And so I speak in front of men also. And so if I ask the men in the audience, okay, now you have to go to Walmart at one o'clock in the morning. How do you feel and walk through that parking lot? Fine, nothing, normal. Like I just walk into the store, right? It's nothing. So again, these, there are so many different abuse tactics and something that might be scary for her, if it's not for you, it doesn't mean it's not abuse. And so looking at who in the relationship feels fear and who in the relationship has the control to kind of figure that out. So we do have some men call and they say that, you know, I know that my girlfriend came to see you and I just want to set the record straight that she was the one that hit me and she threw the keys at me and all of that. Like, I'm not saying that violence is okay. Violence is not okay no matter what. And we have a lot of women who, you know, our clients, when we talk about the abuse and how they had to physically defend themselves, or maybe they purposely started the abuse incident because they knew he is going to be raging all night and I have to get to sleep because I have an important work meeting in the morning. Let's just get this over with. So she's kind of spurring on that abuse to get it done so that she can have a good night's sleep, right? Um, and, and yeah, it might be that she's sick and tired. We know the fight, fight, freeze response and mm -hmm. now appease. And so maybe she is fighting back. It doesn't mean that it's okay. I don't condone any violence, but it doesn't mean that she's the abuser. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that, because that was going to be my next comment or question, because that, I think, is what also the abuser leans on, that fight response, right, yes. when they finally fight back. And I'll be honest, um, there was one time when I was being choked, and I finally punched him. Yeah. And he of backed off and cried. And it was the most empowering moment for me. <laughs> I was just like, why didn't I do that in the beginning? But that just that my was freeze. My yeah. response was just to freeze. And so I was wondering about that. Like, how do you identify when it's a PTSD response versus, you know, you said the myth of mutual abuse, you know? So, mm -hmm. and that's the thing is from these heightened experiences, post-traumatic stress disorder is common. And that's the other thing with not leaving the appease portion. Yes. If I just appease them, if I just cook the dinner at the right temperature at the right time and have it on the plate at the exact time he wants it, then everything will be okay. Right. And so then they get caught up in that cycle too. Yes. Right. She is in survival mode. She's going to do anything and everything to keep herself safe, to keep her kids safe. Um, you know, talking about fighting back during the strangulation. So I don't have statistics, but I can tell you anecdotally, I've, I've worked with over 
1,500 women who are victims of domestic violence. And the majority who are um, wrongfully arrested, it is after a strangulation because she's clawing at his arms to get him off of her, right? She's fighting him. And so who's the one with all the physical marks? Him. And so the police show up and they arrest her. So absolutely, that that is a thing that the abusers will lean on, you know, and she's crazy. She's exaggerating. You don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. And so you know, she's suicidal. So then the police take her to the hospital to get an evaluation, you know, and that's just him using the systems to continue abusing her. Yeah. Yeah. And then people wonder why it's so hard to get out. Right. <laughs> right. And no one's going to believe, you know, I like what you said, Heidi, that of course there are going to be people who lie, who say things, especially in court situations. I have to tell you, that number is so, so low. There's just so much stigma that goes with being a victim of domestic violence. And then all of the court meetings and the legal, you know, meeting with your attorney and going to counseling, you have to figure out childcare, you have to miss work. Like, you know, people aren't going to believe you, people are going to think something. And so it's just, you know, all the shame you mentioned, it, it just really does not happen that often. Um, if they are coming to us to say that they've been abused. Yeah. Wow. So what about services for somebody who maybe has already left? Yeah, they are welcome to come to Genesis. Um, and I know that other domestic violence agencies also, we welcome that. So you mentioned PTSD, um, definitely a, a very common diagnosis in domestic violence and those PTSD symptoms sometimes can linger even after you leave an abusive relationship. Well, let me back up and say that the, the abuse continues after leaving an abusive relationship, but PTSD will can linger, right? Um, or maybe you haven't had any contact with the abuser for a long time, but now the abuse that you experienced is kind of getting in the way with your current healthy relationship, causing some different dynamics. So we recognize that. Um, also, it might not be that she's ready to do the trauma processing when she's in the abusive relationship or right after she's left, but now she feels ready. She's got a stable job. She's got stable housing. And now she's like, okay, now I can work on trauma processing. Great. Now let's do counseling. And so again, she's welcome to come in for services. That is so awesome. And um, I wouldn't have thought that that was something available because when I think of shelters and support, it's immediate emergent, ac emergency, yeah. acute need. And like you said, even the brain, we try to, our brain's function is to protect ourselves. And when we've been in that fight, flight, or freeze or appease mode, and we're in that survival aspect, we're not ready to heal and process yet. We're just still in the yeah. shock and awe stage. Like, is this really happening? Is this really a reality? And then it's like stepping back from that. And like you said, okay, now I'm transitioning into a new life. I have to get a new job and make sure everything else around me is safe. And then there's that period of, where it's like finally, and then they start really feeling the emotions and the impact of what happens. So to know that that is a resource for people, even if they're no longer in that situation is so empowering to know and what a tremendous gift that is for, for those who can, um, who seek that help and need that help. Thank you. We, that is what our non-residential services are for, right? If like you mentioned, the emergent help, absolutely, for our emergency shelter, for people who are trying to escape that violence and that transitional housing, because you need a confidential location and you're no longer with the abuser. But um, but our non-residential services, we have clients at the beginning of noticing that there's abuse, in the middle of abuse, way after the abuse. And yes, I'm happy for them to call us. And um, since you mentioned it before, what about children yeah. of families when after they've left? Yes, so our services for children, we do counseling, um, both individual and group counseling. Um, you know, thinking about how isolated someone feels, a woman and a child in abuse, it feels like you're the only one, even though we know the prevalence. 
Yeah. Um, and so being able to do group counseling is just so powerful for both women and children to be able to see, oh, I'm not the only one. And other people have gone through this. Um, for kiddos, we focus on um, witnessing that abuse, witnessing your mom be abused either by a dad or a stepdad or mom's boyfriend type of a thing, um, mom's girlfriend. And so being able to talk about what was that trauma experience for the kid in witnessing abuse and what did that cause for the child? We know that the number one predictor of child abuse is partner abuse, women abuse. And so um, it's very likely that that abusive partner in the relationship has also um, maybe done some emotional abuse towards the child with name calling and demeaning and put downs, right? Um, it could be that it's escalated to the physical abuse or even sexual abuse towards the child. And so we do trauma processing with the kids. We talk a lot about, um, you know, my body is mine and what rights do you have in a healthy relationship? We, you know, same with teenagers. We're talking all the time about gender roles and, mm -hmm. um, you know, like helping kiddos to see how that abuse and that trauma has affected them. We work a lot with moms on how that, what the effects are on children, emotional effects and physical and behavioral and cognitive, and then really helping mom to learn how to help her children heal. So we do have our parenting classes, but they're not normal parenting classes like, oh, do you know these three steps in this behavior chart or whatever, but we're really talking about how does DV affect kids? How does mom help kids heal from the DV? And what are the parenting skills and you know the discipline methods that are going to still help and help them heal from the abuse um, and especially if the abuser is still in the home we're looking at okay what's safe to do and um, we know that the abusers interfere with her parenting style and don't often let her be the mom she wants to be so we're looking at okay how do we remedy that how do we make up for it now that the abuser is not there or when the abuser is not there how do we make that better I love that you provide all those options. And I, I know I didn't prepare you for this question, but it came up in my mind when you were talking, you know, you talked about the intimate partner abuse, but what if you're in a blended family situation and the abuse is coming from one of your siblings? Mm. Yes. So our mission at Genesis is to only focus on intimate partner violence. But okay. we do get a lot of calls for different types of abuse. And so we have a long list of community resources that we send people to. So I mentioned the family place because they do okay. any type of family abuse. Also, Parkland Hospital has a clinic that's a VIP rape crisis center, and they will do any type of trauma for women and men. Um, and that could be any type of victim of a crime. You also have Darcy, which is Dallas Area Rape Crisis Center, and they focus on sexual abuse for teenagers and adults, and that could be sexual abuse from anyone. So it could be an intimate partner, but it could be a sibling, it could be a parent, it could be date rape, um, you know, stranger assault. Um, I'm trying to think where else we would possibly refer someone, but um, despite us not being able to provide like counseling or shelter or advocacy or, or legal services for those examples, we will always do safety planning. We will always talk about how trauma affects the brain. Um, we would just do that on the phone in that initial phone call when they're calling for services. If we like crisis management, we'll work through that with her on the phone um, and then get her to the right place because we want everybody to receive services. That is amazing. I love that. And yeah, I was just kind of curious about that because that's a situation that came up with a client of mine recently. And actually I've had a couple of friends who have gone into second marriages and then their children have experienced that. And um, so that is great to know. So for you and your program, what does success look like for your clients? What do you define it as or what do yeah. they define <laughs> I really appreciate this question because I think, unfortunately, people think success means that she's left the abuser or that she's not in an abusive, you know, any abusive relationship in the future. But we can't measure success that way. Um, so success for us means that she has increased her understanding of safety planning, her understanding of the dynamics of abuse so that she can recognize when abuse is happening, 
that she has decreased in her PTSD symptoms. Um, if the abuse is ongoing, you're going to continue to have some trauma symptoms, but you don't have to have them very severe, right? So we can work on those um, through that trauma processing. She's increased in her use and understanding of different coping skills and safety planning, or I said that, uh, coping skills and self-care. Um, and she knows she's not alone, right? That for me is a success. If she knows that there's help available, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times women have sat across from me and said, I didn't know somewhere like this existed. I would have looked for help 10 years ago. I wouldn't have stayed with him for so long if I knew that someone really was going to believe me. Um, and so just her knowing that we're here, her feeling emotionally safe with us um, and heard, to me, that's success because now she can feel a little bit more empowered. She can feel that increased sense of self-worth and her sense of power in her decisions that she's making. So um, it would be different, I think, coming from you because of all how um, immersed you are in this world. But what would you say uh, would be the first step if you found out a friend or family member or somebody that you loved was in a situation? What would your advice be to them, your initial advice? Yeah, tell her you believe her and you don't blame her. It's not her fault. She doesn't deserve it because he's telling her she deserves it. Mm -hmm. And she's a terrible mom, a terrible woman, whatever, mm -hmm. right? So like countering what he, the lies that he's telling her is so powerful, letting her know, I want to help you. So is it, if you ever need a safe place to crash for the night, you can come to my house or you just need somebody to cry to, please give me a call or, hey, let's go out and, you know, uh, get lunch so that you can just have an excuse to leave the house. Um, if that's safe for her, maybe that's not safe. Maybe she's not allowed to leave the house, right? Um, letting her know again that there is help available, um, you know, and we do have a lot of people. I, I just am always in awe with, with people in the community who call and say, oh, my employee is going through abuse, right? Um, I had a friend the other day text me, hey, somebody at my office showed up with a bruise, right? So just being able to reach out to Genesis to ask us like, what do I do or how do I help? Our website has a plethora of resources and education. Um, we go and do speaking engagements and community education all the time, not just me, but all of my counselors and advocates. Um, we'd be happy to come to your organization and do a training for your staff. Um, we have a blog. We have lots of social media posts. We have a new podcast, which is exciting. Yay! Yay! Yes. <laughs> Yay, podcast. <laughs> um, so just people being educated and looking for the support and how, how we can support you, how for you to be able to support your friend. You know, the thing that I really liked when you were saying have code words, you know, this means come get me right now. This means I'm in trouble. This means call the police. I like that. Um, my daughter and I, it's interesting. We both have locator on our phone. So we know where each other mm -hmm. are at all the time. It's, it's comforting to be able to look and know where they are based on their phone. And then if we also have a code word between us, she's like, yeah, I know if you ever say this, I know something is seriously wrong because that, or it's not you or whatever, but I, we've never um, dove into breaking it down, call 911 or anything like that. So I think that's really important feedback too. And for us to have those dialogues about, you know, and even in a dating situation, you know, maybe mm -hmm. um, you're not feeling comfortable, especially where online dating is so prevalent and you may meet somebody for the first time. I one time had gone on a date, met somebody at a restaurant, public place, lit, told people where I was going and literally he followed me out and chased me around my car oh my because he wanted me to make out with him. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go home. And he kept trying to grab my arm and pull me in. And, you know, there are people in the parking lot and they didn't do anything, but I'm like, when I am physically running away from somebody, you know, maybe that might be a red flag to you and maybe you might want to get involved. But I mean, it's crazy 
the different scenarios. So I love that feedback. So you have been so amazing sharing us with us our resources and information about it. So just to kind of scale it back to just you and Ruth. So when you've been working with this all day, how do you detach from it and how do you relax at the end of the day? Yeah, so I'd be a terrible counselor if I didn't practice what I preach, right? Yes. So I have to do self-care also. Um, it is a skill. It takes practice. Um, it's a really common question. How do you listen day in and day out to trauma stories without it affecting you? It, it can't help but affect us, right? Um, right. Being, uh, you know, someone who, like, no matter what your role is, if you're working with trauma survivors, you are going to change your worldview, but it doesn't have to change you physically with headaches and nightmares and eating problems. It doesn't have to affect me emotionally with depression and anxiety, but that's my job to make sure that I don't, right? Mm -hmm. So for me to stay healthy for my clients and for my counselors here, I have to do some self-care. Self-care looks different for everyone. Um, I'm very much a list person. I like to check things <laughs> off too. my list. And if I do something and it's not on my list, I add it to my list. I check it off. Me too. <laughs> um, so my self-care maybe looks a little bit different at this point in my career because it is staying late at work to make sure that I can check off some of the things that I didn't get done that day because that's how I go home feeling sane and okay to start the next day, right? Um, I watch a lot of TV because it's just an easy way to like put away all of the issues and just zone out for a little bit. I especially love, which sounds crazy, but I love true crime, like true crime podcasts. Me too. Mostly because yes. the bad guys get caught, right? Well, not all the time if it's true, but let's say like fake fake crime shows, right? Yep. The bad guys get caught. And so then I feel like there's some justice in this world. Yes. Um, I think the biggest thing for me also with my self-care is as a counselor, we're very much doing all of the reparative work, right? We are meeting them after the abuse has happened. So for me to come out and do speaking engagements, to talk to the community, to provide some information, I love going into schools, um, you know, junior highs and high schools and talking about healthy relationships because now I'm doing preventative work and I'm getting ahead of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if one thing I say today can help someone to help their friend in an abusive relationship, I feel fulfilled that, okay, I've helped someone, even if I don't know them. And to me, reminding myself of, that's my why I'm doing this just goes a long way for not getting burned out myself. Do you do any kind of um, exercise? Do you have a favorite thing that you like to do, whether it be like rowing or walking or basketball or anything like that? Oh I think I'm probably just this very boring person. You know, I, I love puzzles. I do love going on walks. Um, I had a dog for 12 years that I would walk her. She passed away right before Christmas Aww. last year. So it's a little difficult finding like time to go walk by myself, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do like to, to be outdoors. I like to spend time with friends. I, I love talking on the phone. I know people don't really talk anymore. They all text. Yeah. Um, but I like to catch up with friends and, and family. So yeah, I do. I, I do a lot of traveling. So that helps me. You said That's you good. like puzzles. Do you like jigsaw puzzles? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes. Me too. I am obsessed with jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> she had one on her table for like two months. <laughs> oh, I still have one. As soon as I finish one, I start a brand new one. <laughs> oh, wow. Everything Love I it. do and I think, oh, I should do this more often and then I don't. But yeah. yeah. I, I love it because it kind of it challenges my brain, but it's also kind of mindless <laughs> activity, if that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yep. That's awesome. Okay, so here, <laughs> here's here's a fun one. Um, do you like to be at the movie theater or do you like to be home to watch a movie? Oh, okay. <laughs> I love watching movies, so I love going to the theater, but if I'm with someone who talks during movies, I'd rather be at my house. <laughs> Me too, so you can tell them to shut up. <laughs> I can pause and rewind. What did I just yes. miss? 
Yep, that's my kids. I'm like, can you please stop talking? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So you just don't go with your kids. <laughs> exactly. Leave the kids at home. Good point. Go by yourself. <laughs> so we always ask everybody this. Do you have a celebrity crush? Oh, um, it's kind of a tie. So okay. I do love the Property Brothers, those twins. <laughs> Something, I don't know. I just love them. Yes. Um, I also really, it's, I, okay, the actor is great, but my like real crush is the TV character Agent Booth in the show Bones. Like the uh... character is my crush, not the actor, although he's great. Um, if I had to just choose one actor, it would probably be Hugh Jackman. So like, wow. I feel like my answer is, like that's more than one person, but I think that's awesome. Well, I mean, he's hot, so <laughs> yeah. Who wouldn't want somebody who could sing to you and dance with you? And right, right. Rip yes. off his shirt and look great. <laughs> Amen. Did I say that out loud? Yep. <laughs> but you got good taste. Yep. Yeah. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for, again, sharing what you do, your program, and just making the sacrifices that you do to help so many people. And would love to give you the opportunity. What is the website? Is there a phone number that people can reach out to? Yes, thank you. So our website is genesisshelter.org. Um, our 24-hour hotline is 214 946 four three five seven um and again we answer in english and in spanish that is for our 24-hour hotline to get into shelter or to receive you know um talk to someone immediately if you're calling during business hours uh, you can also call us at our front office at the outreach which is 214-389-7700 we are open monday through thursday 8 a.m to 8 30 p.m and friday 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. We are closed Saturdays and Sundays. And how do people donate to help? Well, that's the nicest question. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we do not receive any government funds. So we are 100% personal donors and grants. And we just have a great community in Dallas who love us. And we appreciate that. So we do have a thrift store. So people can donate their gently used items. We take clothes and furniture and household goods um, right here on Lemon Avenue and Knight Street. And you can bring in your stuff. You can also shop at our thrift store and all of the proceeds go 100% to providing services for free for clients. So that's paying all of our salaries, that's paying the electricity bill at the shelter for all of the food. Um, we have a robust volunteer program, although COVID has destroyed it a little bit. Um, but if you didn't want to donate any goods, but you wanted to donate your time, you can look up some of our options on our website. We do have Christmas coming up. So we have a holiday program that would love for people to come and adopt a family to provide some Christmas gifts for the moms and kids or women. Um, and then, of course, we will take monetary donations. And so on our website, there are several ways to donate. You can do a one-time donation. Uh, you could do a recurring donation. A lot of people like to do little Facebook fundraisers for their birthdays. Um, we have an Amazon wish list. And so you can, you know, if you wanted to get on there and buy us something that we need for our shelter for, um, you know, any of our clients. So many ways. Um, we do also, uh, like I mentioned, we have our podcast, but we have a conference on crimes against women. So it's an annual conference where it's a national conference, although I just have to say that people from other countries come, which is really wow. awesome, yeah. um, but specifically for professionals who work with survivors and victims. And so if somebody wanted to volunteer to help with wayfinding and room monitoring um, and be able to get some of that training for free, that's an awesome opportunity as well. Awesome. And what is the podcast called? Okay, so we have two. Our one that we started last year during COVID is the podcast on crimes against women that goes along with our conference on crimes against women. And then our newest one is called Genesis the Podcast. 
and I may or may not be on it in a few months. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear me again. Awesome. Wow. I love it. So many ways to help and to, um, you know, with donations or volunteering and just, like I said, the fact you're raising awareness, there's a lot of information that even today, a few things that I, I was not aware of and having been through it myself or having referred some of my clients. So again, Ruth, thank you so much for your, your time and for sharing, um, you know, what it is that you do, what your organization can do to help, um, just this is invaluable information and is life-saving. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Yes. Thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening today. Like, and follow Sarah and Heidi on their Facebook page, Tolbert and McLean coaching and share with them your stories, thoughts about today's episode and let them know what topics you'd like for them to discuss. If you have any questions for Sarah and Heidi or would like to schedule a coaching session, you can email them at tolbertandmcclainecoaching at gmail.com. See you next week.